Well, I have to grab my notes down here, but um, I think this is the second Sunday I've had to do this. Thank you. Uh, I had a frustrating experience on Wednesday. Um, Tuesday evening, I, uh, prior to, to going to small group, we, we heard the, our furnace kind of making some funny sounds, and I was like, oh, I better check that out sometime. And, um, and then uh, about 2 o'clock in the morning, Kelly wakes me up and says, I smell something burning, you know. And when you hear that, um, probably your, your furnace blower motor going out, it's probably one of the best things, you know, that that could be it, at the cause of the smell of something burning. But um, with, uh, on come Wednesday with this Arctic blast that they were talking about us getting that I don't think we got until yesterday. But, um, uh, you know, the concern was, you know, we haven't had heat since like two in the morning. So it's going to get pretty cold in here. And, and um, so I uh, gave a technician a call, and, and they came out and looked at it. And, and um turned out it wasn't just the motor that needed to replace. It was also the fan blade uh, inside of there um, uh, that was also a problem. And, and so they had the motor here in Crawfordsville, but the fan blade itself, the barrel um, blade was up in Logansport, and it wasn't going to be able to, so they weren't going to be able to do anything on it until the next morning. And so I'm sitting here, and I'm like, you know, I really, I really don't want my family to be cold uh, because of this. I feel like I need to do what I can here. So I just asked them, you know, can I just go up to, if I go up to Logansport and get this stuff, just get the motor and the fan blade from up there, can you put it in? And they were like, sure, that'd be, that'd be fine. Well, it takes me a while to get on the road and, and to get uh, going, and and um, took me longer than I expected to get up to Logansport, uh, which, um, thanks to uh, missing turns and stuff, and um, there's no easy way to go through the middle of Indiana. I'm just going to tell you that. Um, so I get there, and... and get it and miss some turns on the way home and, and uh, get back and find that I'm after hours, you know, so it's going to be emergency hours, you know, uh, to put it back in, which, uh, you know, uh, I'm not going to argue with that. Um, and so now the technician's there, we got the fan, we got the motor and everything, and he goes to put it all together and he goes to turn the post of the motor and it's a bad motor just won't turn and so which if you recall that's what was in Crawfordsville um, which that place is now not available uh, to get it in Crawfordsville you know the technician looks at me and, and and says oh I can't believe you did all that driving to bring home a bum motor he's like I am so sorry this like never happens and I'm honestly just kind of looking at him, you know. And I honestly looked at him and said, you know what? And we had talked about our faith prior to this. And, um, and I said, I am just so glad that God is in control. God's sovereign. He, you know, he knows what's going on here. This is a part of his plan. He, he, he 
has got it together here, even when, you know, I'm taking stabs in the dark. And I, and I get that encouragement, obviously, from, from verses like Romans 8, 28 and 29 that say, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And we kind of miss the idea that the good that he's saying that all things are working toward is that we might be conformed to the image of his son. I can rest assured that everything that God allows in my life is to help me to become better conformed to his image, to the image of Jesus. Today we move into John 18 through 19, and the same can be said for everything that Jesus does in these pivotal, pivotal moments of salvation history, that everything that is happening there is happening in order to allow those who love him and are called according to his purpose, in other words, saved by his grace, everything that is happening within these chapters is to allow those that are saved to be conformed to Christ's image. And it's happening to Christ himself for us. We're looking at these two chapters and and the overriding idea that I see in reading and surveying over these two chapters is our our sovereign Savior in the quote-unquote control of desperate unbelievers. This is what I see is is that Jesus was in sovereign control in the events of his final hours before his crucifixion. For instance, just we'll just kind of like breeze over these chapters and we'll look at verses 1 through 11 this morning. But when, when John speaks of Caiaphas, that they're going to the house of the high priest Caiaphas, John refers to him and says, remember, this is the guy that said... It's better for one man to die for the nation. John's just kind of like saying, oh yeah, remember this guy? He he didn't, without even knowing it, Caiaphas foretold this would happen. And when speaking about his trial before the Jews, Jesus is shown as being determined and even questioning his accusers. He's shown to be, in John's narrative here, being in total control. Before Pilate, Jesus almost seems like he's directing Pilate as to what decisions he should make and why. Even even brings Pilate to his own admission that he doesn't even know what truth is anymore. And Jesus is making statements like, you know, those who turned me over to you, they really carry the bigger guilt. As we read, those of you who are familiar with Matthew, Mark, and Luke will notice probably the things that Jesus leaves, or that John leaves out of his account of this night in the garden. He leaves out Judas's kiss, signifying 
who Jesus was to the crowd. He leaves out Jesus healing the man's ear. He leaves out John himself almost being captured by the Romans. And some details are only found here in John. And I believe it's because John chooses to display Jesus' authority, even in this moment. Again, it points to what I see as a narrative here that John is drawing out of these events of Jesus being in sovereign control of even his own arrest. So let's read verses 1 through 11 here. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, and this is referring to basically everything since the beginning of chapter 13, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. When Jesus said to them, I am, I'm sorry, uh, verse 7, so he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken Those of whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus, John tells us. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? The big idea that I, I, I want to get across to you this morning is that as he fell into the hands of desperate men, Jesus put his sovereignty on display as he followed God's plan for our redemption. Part of what made my trip to Logansport frustrating, as I mentioned, was the time it took to get there. This is the last I'll complain about it this morning. <laughs> the Lord willing. Um, I was happy to see that my GPS was going to have me bypass Lafayette, okay, until I, didn't, until I missed the turn off of 52 that then took me straight into the busy section of West Lafayette, you know, Sagamore that you sit there going, you know, next to the mall and the car lots and all that. And then I was excited to find come to Veterans Parkway that my GPS was saying there's a faster route. I don't know what it was thinking because it then took me out away out of Lafayette and then back into Lafayette on 26. I, so you can imagine my frustration with this process. Let me say, when it came to Jesus meeting the needs of our redemption, he didn't miss any turns. He didn't miss any cues. 
He didn't take any wrong turns. His heart was always fully submitted to the Father. His actions were always fully directed by the Holy Spirit. As I've mentioned before, I I appreciate one of the things that was communicated again and again at the um, CIU where I attended seminary. It said, Jesus lived the life that we are called to live, but unhindered by sin. Fully submitted to the Father, fully dependent on the Holy Spirit. And he didn't miss a turn. We see in verses 2 through 4, sovereign timing in the context here. We read that Judas, who betrayed him, also took, knew the place where they were going. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that had happened to him, came forward and said to him, Whom do you seek? Now, I I attended a seminar um, uh, taught by a a professor that he laid out the scenario, which which is very possible that that Judas was, was in a pretty big tizzy by now. And we don't know this for certain in things, but, but we do know that a lot of time had passed. I mean, we've covered a lot in the book of John since chapter 13 when Jesus dismissed Judas from the upper room. And Judas would have gone and procured at least the temple guard, the officers of the chief priests of the temple that he has with him. But it's very possible that he's coming back to the upper room and gets there and it's like, they're not here. Now, it is possible that Judas knew the schedule or something like that, that they were going to be spending the night at the Mount of Olives. And some, some um, uh, uh, see the Garden of the Mount of Olives was very possibly owned by a rich supporter of Jesus' ministry and that they would have stayed the night there on several occasions. <clears throat> Although leading up to this at the, during the Passion Week, they've been staying the night in Bethany. But in preparation for the Passover, the expectation was if you were going to be a part of the Passover, you would stay within the city limits. With the population swelling over the Passover time, they, would, they had extended the city limits to include the Mount of Olives as a part of this, but Bethany not included. So anyways... Whether the scenario is that he shows up at the upper room with just the temple guard and sees that Jesus is not there. And so with the garrison of the Romans full of soldiers because of Pentecost, then goes and they get these, um, what's called in this, a band of soldiers, which is the term for a cohort of Roman soldiers, as a part of this, or if he knew that they would be at the Mount of Olives, he's got a huge group of men with him. As I mentioned, the officers here are the officers, the temple guard of the chief priests, and the band of soldiers could amount to as many as between 600 and 1,000 Roman soldiers. It mentions that they're carrying both torches and lanterns. Both would have been carried by a Roman soldier. But the lantern itself is interesting because it would be a kind of a terracotta jar 
with a lid on it and a strap or a ceramic handle on the top. And it would have an opening on the front where you'd place the, the lamp inside there and it acts as a flashlight. So you've seen, you know, everybody knows the torches walking around, kind of casting light everywhere. The, the lantern is acting as a flashlight. They've got a huge number of men and the equipment including swords and clubs, as we're told in another gospel account. The fact is they came prepared to search high and low in the dark and ready to fight if need be. So it's an overwhelming force determined to find one man in the nooks and crannies of a garden on the Mount of Olives. This was their best opportunity. You might recall from past experiences within the Gospel of John that Jesus was elusive. In John 8, after his proclamation that before Abraham was, I am, we read in verse 59 that the stubborn Jews pick up stones to throw at him. It says, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. In John 10, we read, after Jesus makes the statement, I and the Father are one, we read that again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. And other accounts were given with, for the explanation of his being able to elude their grasp, such as in John 7, verse 30, where it says they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid on, hand on him, John tells us, because his hour had not yet come. And in John 8, we're told after teaching that he is the light of the world. In verse 20, it says these words he spoke in the treasury, right there in the, on the temple mount. And as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. The fact is, is that on this night, whereas the earthly, the the human factor here is like, we are going to have to overwhelm him. This is our opportunity. We got to overwhelm them with force. We have to be able to search him, search for him and find him no matter where he might be. But the fact is, is it's God's perfect timing. His hour had come for him to be our Passover lamb. And he gives himself into the hands of those who want to sacrifice him. And we see first the sovereign, gentle power of our Lord in verses 4 through 6, where we read, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. He said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Jesus is described here as knowing what would happen to him. It's a supernatural knowledge of Jesus that we see as a theme throughout the Gospels. John began this fateful night describing in chapter 13, verse verse 1, at the Last Supper, where he says, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. That that's how this night began, with his knowledge of this. In the first chapter, Jesus impressed Nathanael in calling him to be his disciple, when he said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. 
He's described as being untrusting of the faith of certain people at the end of chapter 2. And it says, because he knew all people and he himself knew what was in man. In chapter 4, he informs the woman at the well that he knew her relationship history. We're reminded once again that our Savior knew that the hour had come for him to be our Passover lamb. And this is said in this verse, standing in stark contrast with the desperate actions and positioning of Judas. I don't know if this was proud, scheming Judas's opportunity to finally have recognition or finally have power, but John describes it in a, in a particular way. And it stands out to me because he'll later describe Peter in the same way, standing with those who were gathered around the fire, having denied his Lord for the first time. And we'll look at that next week. But, but John describes Judas here as standing with the horde of armed men. And Judas is placed squarely on the opposing side of Jesus. And he thinks that he's in the position of safety that comes with numbers and with earthly strength. And this is the last time Judas or John will say anything about poor Judas. Even when he, he says that this was done in fulfillment of, of what he said, that of them I will lose not one. And earlier in John it says, except for the son of destruction. John leaves him out even of that statement. Here is the last statement about Judas. He was standing with them. And we know that he'll go on to take his own life in despair of what he's done. Jesus' sovereign, gentle strength is what we find in this situation. The English translation of what he says here is simply, I am he. He's not just saying, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, I'm this guy. He's using the Greek words, ego, me." I am. We've seen him use this before. It's the Old Testament personal name for the eternal God. I'm not I was, I'm not I will be, I am. He used this before in chapter 8, and those Jews who were listening to picked up stones to throw at him. We see his amazing power under control in what takes place. A little bit of Jesus' authority and strength is allowed to eke out by God the Father. And the whole detail of men are leveled by his statement. You know, there can't ever be a Super Bowl without one of those commercials involving these huge, majestic Clydesdale horses. Part of why we're so inspired by them is because of the immense strength under control. This is actually the definition of the term gentleness. Strength under control. It's what makes a gentleman a gentleman. 
And in our closing today, I'm going to have a few words for us as men on this Valentine's weekend. What makes us gentlemen? But I like what Ralph W. Sockman said, and it's been attributed to others as well. Nothing is so strong as gentleness, and nothing is so gentle as real strength. Sovereign, gentle strength is embodied in Jesus as we get a taste of what he could do if he chose to. Here's a fact, though. The earthly circumstance around you might make you look like you're on the losing side. But we can know in faith that if we side with Jesus, there is no circumstance, no earthly pressure, no power that will cause us to ultimately regret it. In contrast, those who stand opposed to Jesus will ultimately regret their opposition to the eternal one. Every knee is going to bow. Some of us are going to bow because we've joyfully bowed our knees. We've gotten used to it in this life. Others are going to do it with great regret and it'll be only the tip of the iceberg of the regret of their eternity. Jesus is exercising his same gentle strength in your life today. It's done every time we pray according to his name, as John has been talking about in this latter half of his book. The only question is whether we're interested in his purposes. And that's being conformed to his likeness. That's what his gentle strength intends to do in our lives if we know him as our Savior. A commentator made a sad statement at this point. It says, their staggering here, their their falling pack was however only temporary. There was no ongoing recognition of the extraordinary character of Jesus. We see his sovereign, calm submission in verses six through nine. When he says to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And so he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. We see this in contrast, his sovereign, calm substitution, in contrast with the desperate officials that were elevating themselves and determined to stay there. From this point forward, John will only speak, you know, we've heard him speak of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. From this point forward, he only speaks of the high priests who are of the Sadducees. The Sadducees are in power here at this point, and they are in control of the Sanhedrin's movements in this narrative. Recall that it was the high priests that voiced their fear, the Sadducees voiced their fear that the Romans would come and take away their place and their position. And their officers had returned before without arresting Jesus, only explaining that no one has ever taught like this man. 
They were certainly given orders to not let anything deter them on this night. And now it was God's timing. And not even all of them being knocked on their backs was going to stop their mission. The upper room discourse started with John explaining, as we mentioned, what Jesus knew, but also describes what Jesus did. It says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And that's what we see in this moment here. And he says, so if you seek me, I told you I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. One writer spoke of the fact that Jesus intentionally keeps the attention of the horde on himself. And he plays the decoy for the crowd's attention in order to negotiate the disciples' escape. And it may seem insignificant that Jesus gives himself up while seeking the protection of his disciples, but it's not insignificant. It's substitution. And this is a key doctrine of Jesus' work. It was a statement that began this theme throughout John's gospel. Um, for instance, in John the Baptist's statement about him in 129, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus referenced the need for him to be lifted up on the cross in John 3, verses 14 through 15. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He must be substituted for us. In his discourse about being the good shepherd, Jesus informed his followers of his intent in, verse, in chapter 10, verses 11, and, and followed up in verse 28 where he says, the good shepherd lays his life down for his sheep. In verse 28, he tells us, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You know, in basketball, if a player fouls out, there can be a substitution made for them. And as I saw in a Wabash game that I saw recently, uh, when they foul out, they get to hear the uh, pledges calling out left, right, left, right, sit down to the other team. The situation is that the entire human race has fouled out. Unable to compete for a relationship with God. Our sin has caused us to fall short of being able to know God, our creator. The penalty that sin requires is death. You want to get back into the game? No problem, just die. But that's permanent suspicion, suspension for us. We, we, it's a one and done sort of thing for us. We have a problem with recovering from death on our own. We live our lives trying to avoid it. Jesus' substitution for us was possible because he alone could come into the game for the whole human race. Being eternal and all-powerful, his death could count for all people for all of time. 
and having life and power in his very self meant that the grave could not contain him. He won the biggest big game of all time with the entire human race fouled out and unable to help. So much so that they retired the game of salvation. That's why it is offensive to God for anyone to come to him thinking, I think I found this other way following this other guy. Yeah, he, and he died and he stayed dead, but I think I found something else. God's like, the application process is closed. It's been done. The game itself has been retired. My son did it. And I don't take too kindly to people offering up other options. It's not very politically correct, but it's the truth. Jesus alone is mankind's proper atoning substitute. To receive him as our Savior or to challenge someone else to receive him as our Savior is just to simply say, let what he did, what, let what he has done count for me. It's already been done. Please let it count for me because I'm fouled out. You know, sadly, there are those that argue that Jesus was not a substitute for us or that didn't need to substitute for us. Even sadder is that many of these arguments come from within the evangelical Christian community. And their arguments are based on the belief that our sin is not so terribly damaging. That's what it comes down to. We can do it. We're not that bad off. But that ignores the fact of what was foretold 500 years earlier, that the Messiah would need to pay for our sin. As Isaiah uh, proclaimed in Isaiah 53, 5 and 6, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace was laid. With his wounds we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Sad to say is that, this is very politically correct either, but hell will be filled with people whose sins have been paid for. Every single one of them. From the least to the greatest. And in this moment in the garden, Jesus shines as our sovereign, calm substitution. And we also see sovereign, peaceful submission as well. It says, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck his high priest, the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? We see Jesus' sovereign, peaceful submission in contrast with desperate Peter. John pairs he and Peter up a lot in these last chapters. 
dating, starting back with Peter asking John in the upper room, who is he talking about And when it came to the betrayal? And in his defense, Peter did tell his Lord that though everyone else would desert him, he would not. It's not certain if he was aiming for Malchus's ear. I think he was kind of swinging wildly. It wasn't going to accomplish very much. As, but he was swinging wildly as we typically see him doing, whether it be with his words or his sword. But I appreciate what Matthew includes and in what Jesus is telling Peter at this point about Jesus' sovereignty. In chapter 26, verse 52 and 53, Jesus tells him, put your sword back into its place. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? Once again, power under control in his sovereign, peaceful submission. And back here in verse 11, Jesus' question for Peter foreshadows the sad coming reality. Jesus would soon drink the cup of wrath that had built up and simmered because of our sins. Throughout the Old Testament, the cup was described as being of that of God's wrath toward sin. Psalm 55, 8 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. In Habakkuk 2, 16, we read, written to a sinful nation, this this explanation of coming judgment where he says the cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory the book of revelation makes sad statements about the judgment that will be on those who worship the beast revelation 4:10 says he being those who worship the beast will he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. Once again, we see Jesus as our substitution. He's willing to drink the cup of God's wrath so that we don't have to do so. And he's doing this in submission to the plan of the triune God set in eternity past to redeem mankind. So in this moment, Jesus is showing sovereign, peaceful submission. And it's his prayer just prior to this, not shared in John's gospel, that is probably our best illustration of this submission. Those of you familiar with it know that it embodies his submission to God's gospel mission. And we can see in Matthew 26, verse 39, where it says, In going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. It's the very cup of God's wrath toward our sin that Jesus was praying about. And he's both displaying his submission as well as displaying the perfect example to us of what it looks like to submit 
to God's plan for his glory and for our good. Remember that good is being conformed to Christ's image. I don't completely understand how God the Son is submitting his will to God the Father's will here, but I'm glad that he did. It meant our opportunity for salvation was preserved. And we have a tendency only to, to submit to whatever it is that God has in mind only after we've tried to exercise our will over the situation. We have a way of trying everything in our power to carry out our will, and once it doesn't work, submitting to God's will. Or only then do we start praying for whatever He desires. Over temptation, the, the, the temptation that you are facing, I know that God's will for you is your sanctification. He says that in First Thessalonians. Our being set apart for His work, for His glory. Seeking for the ability to say, not as I will, but as you will, and meaning it. Whatever trial you're facing, seek the ability to say, not as I will, but as you will, wherever it may take you. God is just, just as God's plan turned out for the good of Christians being conformed to the image of Christ, you can trust that his will for you will lead you to the same conformity to the image of Christ. There's no better place for you to be led. You know, men, we, we have a special opportunity, especially as husbands and fathers. We have a special opportunity, but also even if we're not married, but specifically so as husbands and as fathers, we have a special opportunity to be conformed to the image of Christ in those family relationships. And I want to speak to us being conformed to the image of Christ as it relates to Valentine's weekend. You know, men, we... Did you know that we learn how to be real men by God's example here? God didn't just take on, let me say, God did not just take on the role of being a father because that earthly thing is kind of the best way to explain him. Just as we are to be fathers because, and fatherhood exists because God is is a father because he is the father. In the same way, Jesus didn't call the church to be his bride because marriage is the best thing to compare it to. Marriage is a picture that points to the eternal marriage that exists between Christ and his redeemed church. It, marriage, earthly marriage flows from the relationship between Christ and his church. Marriage is intended to be what it is intended to be because Jesus is who he has always been. 
If we ever find ourselves thinking, men, you know, I give and I give and I give, and when is it ever going to be given back to me? First, if we think that way because of our self-pity and pride, we're missing all the things that she's doing, okay? But when we think that way, when we think that way, we're not getting it. We are not getting it. Christ laid himself down for his bride in substitution, in submission, in, in strength under control. You can read about it in Ephesians 5. And see here in his gentle strength, his substitution, his submission to God's will. Let this be a model for you of what it means to be a godly husband, to be a godly father, to be a man of God. Let me encourage you men that that Christ is not just our example. He also bought us the opportunity for second chances. You know, that's what redemption is. And take advantage of this, I declare it, Valentine's weekend, you know. You got another day here. If this is like, oh. And and if you feel like you hit it out of the park, do it again. If we we fail to defer, to sacrifice, to love unconditionally our wives, or if we do so with expectations, we need to make Jesus our standard. Exercise your forgiveness and confess it to God. Confess it to your wife wife and live forgiven. I love this uh, definition of godly manhood that comes from Robert Lewis in Men's Fraternity. It's that a godly man rejects passivity, takes responsibility, loves sacrificially, and lives for God's reward. Well, I look at this story of Jesus and his disciples, his body, his bride, his church. We see that Jesus rejected passivity. He took responsibility. He loved sacrificially, and he lived for the Father's reward. Men, he's our example. Young women, he's the example of what you should be looking for. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for putting your love, your power, your gentleness on display in Jesus. Lord, I don't understand this exchange between father and son. But all I know is that all of your work was for us and for your glory. Thank you so much that saving your body is for your glory. Lord, we want to be your body. We want to take that message that salvation has been purchased to our friends and to our family. Lord, I pray that you would empower us for that, and I pray, Lord, that you would deepen our understanding of all that you've done for us in your grace. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.